Hi, and welcome to NANCAST. I'm Jill, your host. Necrotizing enterocolitis. As NICU nurses, we have all seen it. We even fear it. We are all aware of NEC and the signs and symptoms, but how do you prevent NEC or diagnose cases earlier to prevent progression? On today's episode, we are going to take an in-depth look on how we as nurses can make a huge impact on NEC. One nurse scientist, Dr. Sheila Gephardt, has dedicated her research in improving the quality of care for fragile infants, especially with her work with NEC. Her dissertation work involved the development and testing of a risk score for neck named Gut Check Neck. She has continued to refine Gut Check Neck and has created a clinical decision support dashboard including it. Her current work combines Gut Check Neck with evidence-based neck prevention practices. Her team created a toolkit for neck prevention called Neck Zero Toolkit. She continues to lead a program of research to improve quality care in the NICU, study of technology-based tools, and using dissemination and inflammation science. Since 2011, Sheila has served on the editorial board for NAN's journal, Advances in Neonatal Care, and currently co-leads the evidence-based reviews section. Let's get right into it. Hi, Sheila. Thank you so much for joining us today. NANCAST loves to highlight neuroscientists and their research journey, and we want to know what led you to answer that one burning question about neck. How did you become interested in neck? Well, Jill, thanks for inviting me today. I'm really excited to be on this podcast and to talk to your listeners. When I was at the bedside, I was working as a NICU nurse, and we had just recently upgraded our unit from a level two to a level three. And so what that meant was we had traditionally been taking care of older babies, and now we were starting to take care of more um, early gestational age babies and smaller babies. And about six months into that journey, we had a slew of cases of neck. Um, In fact, we had three at once. Now I know that that's not that uncommon to have clustering, but at that time, it was devastating. It was devastating to me, and it was devastating to the families, and it was devastating to our staff. And the backstory was there was one baby in particular that a group of us nurses had been giving report to each other for about 36 to 48 hours before the baby was finally diagnosed with neck. And the story that we were giving each other was you know, she's just not acting quite right. And we we weren't specific. We, we weren't um, putting that message in the context of her risk for neck. We didn't really have a great understanding of how neck can start out as being very uh, general in the symptomology before it becomes something that affects the abdominal signs that we start to see that we think of as being classic neck. You know, this kid hadn't been having bloody stools. She hadn't been puking. She had just been kind of lethargic, cold at times, starting to have more apnea and bradycardia, and just throwing us these nonspecific symptoms. And after that baby got um, sick and finally was diagnosed um, because she had blatant signs at one point, she had to be transported to another hospital and um, actually perforated in transport and died. Did not have a good outcome. She did not even make it to surgery. And that was really, really hard for us. 
But I'm very, very thankful to have been in a unit where they were especially quality-minded, and they started to dig into the three net cases, and they did what we call a root cause analysis and looked at how can we do better for babies who are at risk. And my job at that time was partly at the bedside and partly collecting the data that we reported to the Vermont Oxford Network. And so when we started to do our root cause analysis, my job was to dig into the chart and find all of the data items for these babies. And I was doing some extra data abstraction for our root cause analysis. And uh, we started a quality improvement initiative to try to improve um, care for kids at risk for neck, which is basically every fragile baby, especially those born under 1,500 grams. Uh, And in that work, we were looking at the literature at the time, and this was back in the early 2000s, and looking at the cases. And it bothered me because as a somewhat naive NICU nurse, I was looking at these babies' stories in their charts and looking at the literature and feeling like these kids were set up and we missed it. We didn't have a clear message. We didn't put their symptoms into the context of their risk. And I wanted to do better. Uh, About that time, our family moved to Arizona and my husband got a job down here and I went to grad school. And in my uh, doctoral work, I focused on improving risk recognition for necrotizing enterocolitis. But when I did that, I worked with an informaticist. And so her her approach to neck was very different than a basic scientist. Um, her approach was from a quality and safety and an information perspective. And she offered a lot as I was working on the score that eventually became the gut check neck risk index. I think everybody has taken care of a baby at one point in their career where you feel like something isn't just right, just like you said. And you can't put your finger on it, but you have this gut feeling that there's something wrong. Um, And there's the subtle signs, but sometimes those subtle signs don't really add up to anything until it's almost, until it's like too late, like you said, where they actually have the full blown signs and symptoms of of neck. you know, you mentioned how you focused on on risk factors um, in order to create a tool to help us kind of create a score uh, for these babies. Can you talk to us more about these risk factors and how you created this tool? That's a great question. It's actually an interesting story because I went back and forth thinking about what to call this risk score for a long time. And It was at about two in the morning. I was at a high-risk delivery and kind of waiting for the baby to be born. You know, I had my napkin and my pen in the corner of the delivery room. And like every PhD student, my brain was sort of there and sort of in another place. And I wrote in a vertical line, gut check, and uh, wrote out risk factors for each letter because it does follow the risk factors do fall into that um, uh, acrostic. And so for G, you know, we've got growth restricted, um, gestational age, the lower the gestational age, the higher the risk, Um, gram weight at birth, the lower the weight at birth, the higher the risk. And then it goes down the line, you know, there's risk factors for U and T and C. 
and H and E and C and K. And so I was using gut check, like we called it gut check for a while. And then I was at a meeting when I was almost finished with my PhD and saw a commercial on TV for some sort of an ab uh, exercise equipment that was called gut check. And I'm like, well, can't call it gut check. So um, that's why we call it gut check neck. How did you go about developing the gut check neck tool? The story with gut check neck is that when I was a PhD student, I really got in deep to all the literature I could find about neck risk. And I took uh, studies from all over the place, internationally, in the U.S., trying to figure out what were the neck risk factors. And it was somewhat frustrating because it seemed like every paper I read started with necrotizing enterocolitis risk is about being premature or low birth weight. Like that was always like a leading line into the rest of the paper. And yet they would do these analyses where they would show all of these other contributing risk factors. And it bothered me because I remember when I was at the bedside and I was bothered by this kid who had got neck and we had missed it. I was talking to the neonatologist and I said, well, what are we going to do? Because like we are missing this. Like how can we communicate about this better? Like how do we watch out for it better? Like it just came like all of a sudden it felt like this kid was so devastatingly ill. What are we going to do? And he looked at me and he said, Sheila, we just have to be worried all the time. And I said, (laughs) and, and I took that and I believed him for a little while. And then as I was working on my PhD, I thought, there's no way we can be worried all the time. We have to live. We have to take care of other babies. We have to deal with turbulent work environments. How can we be worried all the time? And so in my PhD, working with this informaticist, you know, I started to study how we have this attention control theory. We have signal detection theory. And in signal detection theory, the concept is, is that we have all of this noise in our environment. And for a signal to make it through the noise, it's got to rise above a diff- you know a level that we pay attention to it. The challenge is, is clinical practice is so challenging with these high-risk kids in these you know high turnover environments, meaning you know kids are coming and going, families are coming and going. You've got really sick kids, and you've got some babies that are convalescing, and yet we have to be worried all the time. Like, how does that work? Uh, So in the construct of all of the other things going on in our work environment, how can we rescue these babies? So back to the literature. So the story with Gut Check Neck, it's actually gone through several iterations, which means we've started at one place, we went to another, and we went to another, and now we're at a fourth place. And the first stop on that journey was doing a state of the science uh, narrative analysis of the literature that was published back in 2012 with advances in neonatal care. And in that state of the science paper, we reported 66 unique risk factors that had been reported in the literature. So that was step one. Step two in the dissertation work is we asked experts across the country to tell us which risk factors they thought were the most important or relevant. And so we got down to 33 risk factors that were agreed on. We got consensus about that these were the most relevant risk factors. The cool thing was that I was able to work with a wonderful organization that had beautiful 
neonatal data. That was the Midnax um, Pediatrics Group. And I was able to actually apply a statistical model to that data and get it down to essentially 10 risk factors that were the most predictive or carried the most weight for neck risk in the kids under 1,500 grams. But we still had agreement before that step by these experts that said, these other risk factors are relevant. These are important risk factors. Um, It's just that we were able to get it shorter and cleaner and weighted when we used the pediatrics data. So we were able to do two things with the pediatrics data. This was still part of the uh, dissertation work. We were able to figure out how much weight each of these risk factors contributed. And then we were able to see, did the score predict neck in a separate group of babies? So we took this big, beautiful data set and we split off part of it and we reserved it for testing. We didn't use it for the derivation, which told us how much weight each of these risk factors contributed. So then we were able to test prediction in the separated portion of the data. And it was really, really, really cool to see that it actually had pretty good prediction for the worst neck. So the kids that got neck that ended up dying or the kids who had surgical neck. And so that was really great. It wasn't quite as good to predict medical neck, which is not that surprising when you look at some of the other work around medical neck. Uh, But good news is, is that that gave us enough data to create this 10 item quick score, basically, for neck risk. And that's what the short version of the gut check neck score is. The long version is what came out of the, uh, the part of the study that involved asking experts about neck risk. Now, so when you when I told you the story about standing in the delivery room, writing on the napkin, the gut check um, acrostic, it really is easy to remember the risk factors when you write gut check vertically and you just start brainstorming. Okay, so what risk factors can you think of for G? Gestational age. Everybody thinks of gestational age. Um, gram weight is one of the things that goes into G. And then for you, um, uh, we had basically uh, acidosis at delivery. So I have umbilical artery, arterial cord pH less than uh, 7.1 to indicate perinatal asphyxia. Um, and then you keep going down. T uh, involved a transfusion history. Um, treatments that reduce risk. That's one thing that's unique about gut check neck is it actually gives you, it takes points away from your risk if you are exposed to things that reduce risk. So those two things in the short version of gut check neck were um, exposure to human milk and uh, at day seven and day 14 of life, there's a story behind that. So exposure to human milk took points away from the score, which is great. It lowered your risk. And then even back with that data from, you know, 2011 and before, probiotic exposure reduced risk. So um, so that's pretty cool. But you can download the full gut check neck scores from our website, which is nextzero.arizona.edu. You could probably get to it by just 
Googling gut check neck, you'd probably need the neck part. Uh, <laughs> or you're getting an abdominal machine. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. But um, but the story is, is that when we did this statistical modeling that told us how much each of these respectors contributed, we found that the unit component contributed way more weight to the baby's risk than even things that we always think of like gestational age. So if a baby was being cared for in a unit with a high neck rate, they had a higher neck risk. So there's some dependency there statistically, but even so, it's an important finding because we had kids who were otherwise vulnerable, you know, otherwise had risk factors, but something about the care in the unit impacted their likelihood to go on and develop neck. And in 20. 12, when we did this initial research, that was kind of a big finding. Since then, there's been a lot of initiatives to reduce neck using quality improvement. Lots of work going on across the country to increase exposure to human milk and some studies going on even here in the U.S. with probiotics. So there's work being done. But back in 2012, like all of the papers that you're reading up to that point, they were saying, uh, you know, babies are at risk because they're premature or because the baby is vulnerable. And so what that study did when we m- modeled and weighted gut check neck is it showed us in a s- sample that included 284 different NICUs that something about the unit contributed more weight to the baby's risk for neck than even gestational age like by three times, like this was a major deal. And so when I was trying to figure out what the next study would be post-dissertation, I was really wanting to figure out, well, what's different? You know, how is it that some units have really high rates and some units have really low rates? Or what happens to a baby who's really high risk, but he's cared for in a unit that has a low endemic neck rate, like what's going on there. And so right after that dissertation work, I started to do a deep dive. And this actually goes into my work with the journal, trying to figure out like what's the evidence for neck prevention. And um, so I started to really dive into the evidence for, you know, human milk, which everybody kind of agrees that there's really great benefit there. But how much human milk? And what if you have just a little bit of formula? Does that matter? So um, what about fortifiers? So there was a lot of complexity to that. Um, What about using human milk in the mouth? You know, the colostrum for oral care that um, Nancy Rodriguez uh, led, you know, way back in the last decade. So, So there's a lot of components to neck prevention that I started to get into, which other people in the field had probably, you know, started to touch on and work on and and do, especially those early adopter units who, you know, were focused on what is the evidence for neck prevention or what do you think we can do to reduce neck in our units before, you know, 2012. So I really started to get in deep with the evidence around neck prevention and then wrote a couple of grants, and finally got some funding to create clinical decision support. The funding was to create a technology-based tool to help clinicians uh, recognize neck risk in real time using gut check neck. 
and then also adopt prevention practices for NEC. And that's what we call collectively the NEC Zero Intervention, which puts all of it together. I mean, that that's a, an amazing, useful tool. You spoke of, um, you know, getting that signal through noise. And, you know, if you have this tool, I have this score, I can show that to the team and say, you know, this baby is, is at high risk and this is my score. And maybe that signal will get through all that noise and all the worry that us as bedside nurses are doing um, and, and get those, the healthcare team to pay attention and, and to look at this baby. Cause you know, you said it's, it sneaks up on you um, neck. And if I can figure out and determine what babies are at risk um, right away, given their gestational age, their weight, were they acidotic at birth? All of those factors will help, you know, let's look at this baby a little closer or let's follow this baby a, a little closer. Because sometimes it is difficult as a bedside nurse to, you know, get the attention of the physician because sometimes all you have is your your gut and you're saying like these are, you know, maybe I'm having a little bit of vital sign changes, a low grade temp, temp instability or whatever. Um, but we know that might lead up to it, but to have a score as a, as a way of a scoring tool is, is very useful um, for, for bedside nurses and, you know, and also for, for clinicians as, as well. That's our goal. And we did actually do a qualitative research study where we asked people about how they communicated about neck because we were trying to create structure for where we would put the clinical decision support tool. And one of the things that we unanimously heard, especially from our providers, you know, our nurse practitioners and our physicians, was that they were getting a lot of nonspecific messages. And and um, there was a lot of issues with the process, like trust came into to the story because, you know, they even said, you know, when we get the call from a certain nurse and we don't usually hear from them, we know they're really worried. And I think that's great if you're the certain nurse, but that kid didn't decide who's going to take care of him that day. And he didn't choose to have, you know, the novice who nobody knows. So I think that's where I was, my heart for Gutschenk was to support the novice and to make everybody's voice the same. You know, that's we- That's an excellent point. That's excellent. Because that happens. I, I, yeah. I hate to admit it, but it happens. Yeah, and it feels really nice if you're the expert nurse that all the physicians listen to, uh, but that's really not a good process if you think about it. Um, we also found in that qualitative study that things like primary nursing can come into play, you know, where you know the baby and you know something's not right. Uh, so, yeah, that's the vision. It's the vision to have a, cl- a quick, efficient score that can be a signal through the noise. We did go ahead and partner it up with a structured communication tool that's in an SBAR format. We did that back in 2015. And um, if anybody wants a research project, this thing needs to be tested and adapted and refined. But we we created the SBAR based on three different research studies on clinical signs around necrotizing enterocolitis onset. Um, those studies were done by uh, Bob Christensen in Utah and Kate Gregory up in the Northeast. And then my project with Shelly Fleiner um, in, in Arizona. And so the SBAR tool actually integrates those evidence foundation 
uh, symptoms or warning signs. Parents like to call them warning signs with the score. And so it, it helps to guide that conversation when there's concern about neck. So you talk about um, neck zero um, and how that's another useful um, clinical support uh, tool. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and how nurses can bring that to the bedside? Sure. So the easy way to find out about Next Arrow is really to Google it. There is a website and then there's also what we call a scoping review, which is open access and anybody can find and download. And the scoping review talks about the evidence base for each of the main components of Next Arrow. There's four main components. It's a bundle. It's really kind of simple. It's a bundle. The first part of the bundle is human milk promotion. The second part of the bundle is adopting a feeding protocol. We don't say which one or how to do it, but a unit adopted consistent feeding protocol is, is the second part. Um, medication stewardship. So that involves limiting exposure to empiric antibiotic therapy as the initial course, and then also avoiding antacids or H2 blockers. So that's the third component. And the fourth component is having some approach that everybody agrees on to risk awareness and timely recognition. We call the fourth component timely recognition, but it basically involves adopting a score like gut check, neck, and um, making that part of your regular process. I just have to say too, there are two other good scores. They haven't been tested in the same way as gut check, neck, but they are being used and have had some good success. One of those scores is called ENEC, E-N-E-C, and that was developed by Chris Wetzel in Illinois. And then the third score is called um, NEONEEDS, which was, uh, I think, developed in Virginia somewhere. The thing with Next Zero is that it is a bundle of evidence-based prevention practices to, and to help support timely recognition. So that's the fourth piece. But we don't get too specific about what feeding protocol or, um, you know, which score, although we actually recommend gut check neck because it's the one we use and we we have it and we have some tools to support using it. But if you have another score that's been research validated and you feel good about it, like I'm not going to say don't use that score. But next zero as a bundle is um, there's some tools to help you adopt that evidence on our website. We also did something kind of unique with Next Zero, and Next Zero is named as a goal. You know, we want to get to zero neck, and it was fashioned, the naming of Next Zero was fashioned after some of the high reliability organizations that say, like, we want zero events. Um, like, I went to Boeing a couple years ago and toured their airplane um, building place and uh, <laughs> there's a name for it, a factory or you know where they build airplanes and on the walls you, you see like zero harm you know zero events we want to get to zero so the idea is getting to zero so next zero um, has a toolkit that's associated with it there's clinician components and then there are family support components and the family piece of next zero is really threaded through the whole story and it's really, I think that's also one thing that makes the Next Zero bundle maybe a little different than some of the other quality improvement initiatives to reduce neck because it actually formalizes how we engage with parents. We had three parents who had all 
parented babies with neck on our advisory group, our next zero working group, when we formulated the next zero intervention. And those three parents, I'm thinking of them right now, only one of their children survived. Like, so the two of the parents, their children died. And then one of the um, moms, her son survived neck um, and is now, I think he's about six now. Um, so that's pretty cool. But you know, there's something about getting a group of clinicians and research experts in a room and you have these parents in the room. And when the research experts say, oh, we can't do that. We're going to scare the parents. And the parents speak up and they're like, well, my baby died. So that puts a whole different spin on the conversation. And it brought a level of urgency and clarity to the next zero work. Like when we did the scoping review and we looked at the evidence, the parents are like, well, this is really great, but how are you going to tell parents? And kind of along, I'm sorry to kind of walk the, the whole landscape of this journey, but one of the things that happened around that time was that the next society was born. And I know you've had Jen Canvas there on your program. And the Next Society is a parent advocacy group. It's a really a neck advocacy group that's led by two moms whose kids died from neck. And Erin um, Umberger and Jen Canvasier are the two moms. They are unbelievable. And around the same time that we were doing Next Zero, the Next Society was getting its legs. And so when Erin spoke up at one of our meetings, you know, you really need to do something for the parents. Um, thankfully, I had people in the room who were different from me who, who were like, yeah, we need to do that. Um, so uh, not saying that I didn't care. It's just that I was very razor focused on trying to develop this technology, which is a lot of work. And I just didn't want to get distracted. But we can't say that parrots are a distraction. Like they're like the main thing. Like they have the most to lose. Right? Yeah. And I think having... Jennifer on from the Next Society was very powerful and, and moving as a nurse to hear her journey um, from the other side of the bed. You know, like you said, we are so razor focused on our, our baby, doing our assessments, the interventions and the care that sometimes, unfortunately, the parents kind of blend into the background. Um, and, you know, and they're the ones that, you know, are, are feeling this a lot harder than us. And we and we really need to bring them to the forefront and have them. Um, in our minds when we are doing these kinds of um, scoring and these different interventions and, and have them a part of the conversation and know what we're doing and why we're doing, you know, what we're doing and the importance of human milk and educating them on that. You know, J Jennifer was talking about how, you know, she wished, wished that people were more upfront with her. With yes. her. And, and that to me, like a lot of times I think we try to hide stuff, not hide, that's a horrible word, but we limit what we tell the parents because we're afraid we're going to scare them. Or we don't want to overwhelm them. But parents want to know the information up front. And, and that was that kind of changed my thinking uh, moving forward after speaking with her um, to be more upfront with, with the families. Yeah, I'm so glad. Like everyone I've ever known who has heard her or Erin or any of these parents who have experienced neck talk, when you listen to their stories, it changes you. It should change you, right? I think the thought of having parents involved in research, a lot of people are scared of that, researchers or nurse scientists, but they need to be. And I think that way of thinking needs to change. And I think we need to 
incorporate them in our QI initiatives on the unit, um, evidence-based practice changes on the unit. Parents should have a voice in that. Um, and I, you know, speaking with people on NAMCAS, all the neuroscientists and researchers were on there, like that comes up a lot, that topic. And, you know, I, that's the way that we should be conducting our QI or EBP or any of our bedside research. Absolutely. And I'm so excited to hear that other people, you know, in the field are adopting this strategy because, you know, having the stakeholder input at the point where you're asking the research question is something we need uh, for a NICU who's thinking about how do we adopt an evidence-based practice bundle for a neck and maybe we're thinking of next zero for them to have a parent uh, engagement component. It would be best if they had a parent advisory group or an advisor. One thing I learned from one of my mentors was that if you do have a parent advisory group, make sure you don't just have one person because it's a huge burden for them to be the voice and they can't always be that, you know, and it's, it's not fair. And so my um, parent mentor, her name was uh, Kira Sorrells and she runs the Preemie Parent Alliance, which now has a new name. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, and she actually encouraged me to have three, three different parents on our group because, and then to debrief with them and to connect with them and to learn from them. But I have to tell you, the thing that they did for their research was that they gave it legs and they made it meaningful and they helped us dispel myths at the point where we were deciding what was possible and what was not possible. So these parents, they helped us develop some but they helped us develop our website, our parent education brochures, which is really awesome. And then they gave us these unbelievable ideas about how to disseminate it so that we could reach parents. Um, so it, it's been a really great relationship. So Sheila, what is the next step for you on your journey with researching Neck? Well, Jill, I want to say what's the next thing on my calendar <laughs> related to neck, and that is the due date for the articles that are gonna be in the neck special issue of Advances in Neonatal Care. I am one of the editors for that. I'm co-editing it with uh, Dr. Megan Quinn. And those papers are due early April at the latest. So we're, we're hoping to get lots of great research papers and practice papers about neck. And um, so that's kind of the next thing that's on my calendar. The, another thing that's going on that's just right around the corner is the, uh, the next symposium is going to be held again. That's in May, May 19th through 21st. That is sponsored by the Next Society. And you can find out more about that at nextsociety.org. So that's a really great meeting. Um, uh, so in terms of calendar, those two things are are on the list. And then also in research, we are doing this great project that we ran a pilot for back in 2019, where we were connecting with units like yours, maybe, or the unit I was in in Oregon. And we are trying to help them to adopt um, the next zero practices. And we're doing that in a format that uses telehealth. So we connect with the units using telehealth and we mentor them through about a uh, 
three or four month process where we meet every couple of weeks and we help them work through the complexity of adopting neck prevention practices in their unit. So we call that project Neo Echo and you can find out more about that at our website, uh, which is uh, nextzero.nursing.arizona.edu, kind of a long one. Uh, so those are the things that are on my list. But back to the journal, I think it's, I don't want to put out the false belief that you have to be ex- an experienced researcher or an experienced writer to pursue writing for publication. And uh, because we are eager for great work to find its way onto the pages of advances in neonatal care. And sometimes that involves mentoring. So what that is one of the things that I do as a section editor is I am willing to mentor new authors and help them to work through their ideas and get them into publication-ready format. Well, I think that you have armed a lot of nurses with some amazing resources. So hopefully they can take them to their units and, and make change. Um, and then maybe call you up and help and, you know, see how you can mentor them. You know, the Neo Echo um, opportunity is great if your unit is struggling with neck. So definitely check that out. And also gut check neck, neck zero. All that information is out on the website, um, you know, and it only starts with one question. Look at Sheila's story. That was, you know, she was concerned about the increased neck rates on her unit. And then she how can I fix that? And then came to where she is now. So thank you so much, Sheila, for joining us today and, and sharing your research journey. Oh, it's been fun. Thanks, Jill. Make sure you never miss an episode of NANCAST by subscribing now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks for your support and letting us into your ears. Have a great day.